I hope you got your sauna pants on because this is the element of surprise. My name is Chadwick J. Suet, and I am your host on this little shindig we like to take together every once in a while. You know, I need a new catchphrase. What? Why, why do I always say the shindig that we take together every once in a while? Why is a shindig and why do we get to take it? Why is it not given to us? Is it mine to take? I don't know. I don't know. That being said, I do have... Uh, quite the episode planned for you guys. Uh, we have some new forgotten cartoons. We've got uh, talk about sex toys that nobody ever asked for. We've got a movie review of uh, the 1994 epic Time Cop, as well as just some other shit that I thought of on, the whim- on a whim. So, let's begin, shall we? Okay. Um, you know what? We'll start right off the bat with, uh, let's go with the worst superhero that I've ever, that I could find. Because I, I was looking, I'm like, you know, there's so many superhero movies out these da- these days. There's uh, the Avengers, there's the DC Universe. There's a whole fucking universe of, you know, just fucking uh, superhero movies and stuff. And I'm like, there's got to be a bad one out there. And guess what? There is way more than one bad superhero out there. There are just some that are just fucking absolutely useless. But, but, I will tell you this. I stumbled upon possibly the worst of the worst and that superhero is ready for it bullet man that's right bullet man a man who dresses like a bullet uh he's from the he was created in the 1940s his real name uh his or uh, not a real name but uh his uh secret identity was that of jim barr so let me set the stage for you. In 1940, uh, Jim Barr, he wants to be a police officer. Um, unfortunately for Jim, uh, he can't shoot, he can't run, or based off the comics that I read, he can't fucking think. So uh, they just reject him, and he gets an idea. He gets an idea in his fucking idiot brain. He says, I should invent a serum, like a combination serum, that cures crime, and there won't be any more crime. And uh, so he goes to work on inventing the serum. The serum turns out to be something that you drink that makes your body capable of basically just punching crime or punching criminals. Um, so it, uh, I guess it also made uh, Jim Barr kind of like a, like, a, like a genius in the sense that any random series of thoughts that came into his head, he would just say aloud. And, uh, you know, it, he, he, he also built a crime-fighting invention uh, that invention was a bullet-shaped helmet, which allowed him to fly for some reason, and also deflected bullets. But only his helmet did this. Um, now, good old Jim Barr, he knew that wasn't enough. So he invented a bullet-shaped helmet, but what else did he need? He needed a costume 
that would strike fear into the hearts of evildoers. So what did he choose? He grabbed a pair of black boots, some bright, re bright yellow acrobat tights, and a uh, form-fitting red shirt. So all that, coupled with his helmet, um, turned him into Bullet Man. But that being said, he did look less like a man who is supposed to be a bullet and more like a human vibrator. Um, and, you know, so we're off to a good start. He's already uh, clearly the worst superhero that uh, I, could, I could find. I'm sure there's others out there, but, uh, you know, it gets worse. The dumbest thing about Bullet Man wasn't that he thought he cured crime by drinking a potion that helped inspire hat making uh, or uh, gave him a tendency to punch things. It was that... Uh, the only thing he ever did to combat evil was punch, and those punches were useless. They did absolutely nothing. He used his so-called quote-unquote crime cure uh, super punches on just generic bank robber villains who in turn would hit him with a piece of furniture almost exclusively. They always somehow fucking had furniture to hit him with, and then they would escape. So, um, you know, tired of being outwitted by low-level criminals who have access to an Ikea catalog... Uh, Bullet Man went out and got himself a sidekick, the aptly named Bullet Girl. And so she had the exact same capabilities as Bullet Man, but just with weaker punches and less pants. So, uh, and, or in the 1940s, I guess they would call that woman strength. But, uh, you know, and Bullet Girl's uh, greatest ability seemed to be getting easily knocked unconscious and captured uh, every single time she went out crime fighting. Um, also, uh, his secret identity of uh, Jim Barr apparently was such a closely guarded secret identity that uh, Bullet Girl just would just scream his real name all the time and for any reason. And uh, also his bulletproof helmet fit thing didn't cover his face. So anybody that's walking around the street that already previously knows knows Jim Barr will see his face and be like, Jim, why are you dressed like a, uh, like a dildo, man? But, uh, you know, when you're weak enough, I guess, to be defeated by any tiny table corner and you're stupid enough to think you cured crime by drinking juice and then using the world's least effective punch, I guess it's important to pick your battles. And admittedly, this was Bullet Man's best talent. Um, so not a, not a single villain he ever fought had any powers. And most of them had what appeared to be legitimate physical ailments as well. So um, I'm going to tell you now about what I came across as Bullet Man's deadliest battle. Uh, his most fiendish foe was... Apparently an overweight elderly man who, again, easily knocks Bullet Girl unconscious, said some pretty rapey things, and then proceeded to engage Bullet Man in fisticuffs. So Bullet Man just unleashes some of his famously impotent punches on him, and uh, the, the guy, the overweight elderly man, retaliates by open hand slapping Bullet Man in the face, leaving Bullet Man absolutely confounded. He's absolutely confounded by this. But then he trips on Bullet Girl's helmet and knocks himself out. That, that's the hardest fight Bullet Man ever had. Was fighting an old man, a, an old man who, who was into rapey things and possibly had dementia, who open hand slapped Bullet Man in the face and then knocked himself unconscious by tripping. Um, in fact, I did some further research, and the closest thing to a real supervillain that Bullet Man ever got was a character they called The Weeper. W-E-E-P-E-R. The Weeper. Um, the Weeper was a guy who would commit crimes, but then, after the crime was committed, if anybody got hurt during the crime, he would feel bad and cry. 
and he wore a blue opera cape, a top hat, and he carried around a small walking stick with him. Um, so what I've determined is this, is that essentially, after failing miserably to stop any crimes at all, Bullet Man and Bullet Girl spend the remainder of their time going after a guy with depression who likes to dress like he lives in Victorian London. Um, later on, Bullet Man and Bullet Girl, they teamed up with Shazam, who was DC's uh, original Captain Marvel, um, who in and of his own right is an 8-year-old or 10-year-old boy who yells the word Shazam and basically turns into Superman. Um, so that's Bullet Man. He's just like the worst. Bullet Man is the worst. Um, okay, I want to talk uh, for a moment about Richard Bazzi. Richard Bazzi is the owner of Schultz Ford in Wexford and Schultz Ford in Harmerville. I know anybody local to the Pittsburgh area has seen the commercials. He's the guy with the co with the uh, cowboy hat, and he comes on. He goes, "Yeehaw! I'm Richard Bazzi, Schultz Ford, Harmer, Phil, Schultz Ford, Wexford. This car," and he talks about his cars. But um, you know, I, I okay, all right. I, I'm I, I'm convinced that he is a coked up cowboy Nosferatu ghost, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, you know, I've said many many times before on this podcast, as well as just in life, that uh, I, I have a love, a secret love, for uh, poorly made local commercials from my Pittsburgh region. Um, you know, if you, if you own a, uh, a business around the Pittsburgh region, and you make a commercial just based off of whatever petty cash you got lying around, I'm going to watch it, because it's, it's, so, it's so terrible that I've got to see it. Um, you know, they, they've got all the production value of homemade pornography, basically, and they're usually starring a person who is wildly out of touch with reality. Uh, however, none of them, none of the commercials come close to equaling those of the Schultz Ford of Wexford or Schultz Ford of Harmerville. And all that comes from Richard Bazzi. Uh, they're so insanely poor made that I truly believe Mr. Bazzi just shows up to one of his dealerships with a home video recorder that he bought in 1996 and says, let's film a commercial. If you don't believe me, go to YouTube and look it up. Just look up Richard Bazzi, Schultz Ford, Schultz Ford commercials, and watch a few of them. Because Richard Bazzi runs around his car lot, rambling nonsense about each car as he jumps up and down on them and punches them. And he's very often wrong in the descriptions, prices, or deals going on, constantly asking a sales manager for correct information. Um, okay, so here's an example. Here's an example I'm going to give you right now. I'm Richard Bazzi and Schultz Ford of Wexford, the cocaine king of Cat Car County. Coal mines, steel mills, coal miner's daughter. Check out that Dodge Charger. How much is it, Steve? $47,899? No way. Now it's 83.6% off. Even Sissy Spacek would want a deal like that. Come on out and do a line with me for an additional 43% off. Yeehaw! There's three things I stand for in Wexford. Cats, life, hats, cocaine, friendship, leasing, percentages, cocaine, Harmerville, Wexford. Home of the disabled kids and me, Richard Bazzi, home of the Ford and cocaine. See, I just made that shit up, and I'm promising you it's a thousand percent accurate. It's a thousand percent accurate. If you don't believe me, watch the goddamn commercials. You know, and but uh, going further though, it's it's not the quality of these cinematic masterpieces, uh, notwithstanding, so much as it is uh, Mr. Bazzi himself. Let's take a moment. Let's just take a moment to reflect on and look at Richard Bazzi himself. Okay, so I imagine, and I I, I partially believe. That Mr. Bazzi begins each new day, as we all should, by turning over upon waking and slamming his face into a nightstand covered entirely in piles of cocaine like in Scarface. And then he immediately rises straight up 
straight up from his bed in a perfectly stiff position like a vampire rising from a coffin. And then, after consuming an eight ball for breakfast and finding himself mysteriously dressed, Bazzi then grabs his camera and heads for whichever dealership has the better likelihood of him driving past a funeral. After arriving at said dealership, I have no doubt that he asked to see what the newest trade-ins are in hopes that one was recently owned by a drug dealer, which is why I believe that uh, Wexford and Harmerville had to be strategically planned locations, by the way. Finally, finding the vehicle that had seat cushions filled with his favorite white substance and using his nose like he's a homemade vacuum cleaner, he gives the vehicle the cleanest interior on the lot, if you, you know what I'm saying, wink wink. Uh, then he calls his entire staff outside and proceeds to shriek madness at them for 45 minutes. By this time, it's 10 o'clock in the morning and he's beginning to find his stride for the day. So he tosses the camera to whoever is closest to him, be it an employee, a customer, or simply a figment of his imagination, yells, let's do this! And then after completing another uh, commercial or episode of Richard Bazzi Presents Cocaine-Fueled Rants About Cars, he swiftly rushes to his own trunk where he keeps even more cocaine and buries his head into it like an ostrich. Then he challenges his entire staff to fight him barehanded, viciously eats a hoagie, and comments on the size of his own balls. This isn't all that surprising, really, considering that his single best character trait is be in front of the camera. And that really isn't all that difficult. Excuse me, all that difficult. So, finally, after forcing his employees to film another raging monstrosity, possibly at gunpoint, Bazzi finally slinks home and dives into his own bed, where I'm sure he has fever dreams of Superman throwing the Superman symbol like a piece of crypt Kryptonian saran wrap at that guy from Superman 2, and shrieking in envy about John Belushi's one-man cocaine party life. Uh, the best part of all this for me, personally, is that I don't see it ending anytime soon. In fact, I'm very certain that after Richard Bazzi does so much cocaine that his heart just explodes from his torso, like Michael Ironside exploding people's heads in the movie Scanners, someone will simply prop him up and begin manipulating his body like Weekend at Bernie's. Either that or his eternally cocaine-fueled cowboy ghost will haunt the dealerships until they join the Green Man Tunnel or the Blue Mist Road as the thing of Pittsburgh urban legend. So that's, that's my take on Richard Bazzi. Um, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. Um, okay, let's see. Let's, uh, let's do some forgotten cartoons, shall we? Let's do some cartoons. What, uh, let's see, I got a whole bunch of cartoons here. Okay, so, uh, first one I'm going to do is Ghostbusters. And no, I'm not talking about the Ghostbusters cartoon, the real Ghostbusters that was based off the movie with, um, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. I'm talking about the 1975, uh, TV show, The Ghostbusters. And they made a cartoon of it. It was, uh, here's why it sucked, basically. Let me get to that. So... Columbia Pictures licensed the name Ghostbusters uh, for, um, and rushed to cash in on the animated revival of uh, its live-action series after the movie in 84 became a hit. Now, that, since they had already owned the, uh, the name Ghostbusters, it's, you know, they just wanted to uh, cash in on it. And basically, the series is this. It is about a pair, just two guys, who are bumbling paranormal investigators. Um, you know, I, I, I have an idea that many 
many a child who tuned in to the TV in the, every Saturday morning, excited to watch the uh, the adventures of Peter Franklin and uh, Egon Spangler, only were, were 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 horribly crushed with disappointment, having to settle for the antics of uh, Jake Eddie Jake Kong, Eddie Spencer, and Tracy the Gorilla. Um, yeah, that's right. They had a gorilla named Tracy. You know, viewers used to use the portable nuclear accelerators employed by the cinematic Ghostbusters may also be dismayed at the low-tech means that this cartoon used to capture the phantasms here, which include trapping them in bubblegum, soap bubbles, and throwing lassos around them. Rope lassos around a fucking ghost. Oh, don't well, don't worry. We're the Ghostbusters. We got this. Oh, you, you guys got those uh, proton packs and uh, uh, the ghost trap? No, 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 no. We're not those guys. We're professionals here. We've got this rope. It's got a loop on the end. We're just going to swing it. We're going to catch a ghost. Um... Yeah, and the title sequence was terrible. You could find this on YouTube as well. It, it, it starts out pretty much like you'd expect. Uh, the Ghostbusters are called to a scene that needs some ghostbusting. And uh, when they arrive, the ghost in question inexplicably transforms into a random, random assortment of popular fictional characters, including C-3PO, Skeletor, and President Teddy Roosevelt. Because that's, that's this ghost's powers. He's going to be C-3PO, Skeletor, or Teddy fucking Roosevelt. Um, also, Tracy the Gorilla stands around and looks scared. That, that's his purpose in the show. Um, the first viewing of that opening sequence was a landmark event for many a young Ghostbusters fan. As it probably, probably resulted in the very first time they ever used the phrase, What the fuck? And I mean, only if they'd made the cartoon based on the movie, that wouldn't fail to be cool, right? Right? Okay, next forgotten cartoon, and I'm probably going to get some backlash on this one, is She-Ra, Princess of Power. It was based off She-Ra from the Mattel toys, and was a spinoff of He-Man. Um, it was basically just a gender-flipped version of He-Man in Masters of the Universe. Um, it was meant to appeal to girls. But the girls who wanted a He-Man style series were fine just watching He-Man. Uh, meanwhile, the boys who weren't turned off by Shiro were the fact that the character of Madame Raz, um, which was basically just a drag king impersonating uh, the He-Man character Orko, found it kind of hard to accept the token male character, a bard named Bao. Uh, Bao essentially filled the same, same role as... Um, the guy who played guitar in the band Hole, no matter how hard you rock, it's still totally emasculating to be the token dude in a chick band. So um, that was Bao's purpose in She-Ra. Um, compounding on this problem, of course, his appearance couldn't have possibly been gayer. Uh, not only did he sing and play a harp, but he sported a thick mustache, and as we all know, I'm all for a thick mustache, but he also had a heart on the chest of his uniform. Um, the title sequence of She-Ra, you know, in the in the eighties, if you watch a cartoon from the eighties, most most cartoon shows chose to, you know, overdramatize the origin story of the character, including He-Man and Masters of the Universe, but not She-Ra. She-Ra directly addresses the camera and explains that she was He-Man's twin sister. I guess the producers were figuring that little girls with smaller brains couldn't be trusted to pick up on image cues. 
And uh, the end result is an intro that comes off feeling like a PSA about magical swords. Um, next, the Fantastic Four. In 1978, the Marvel comic book of the Fantastic Four got its own animated show. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. They got the Thing and the Human Torch. Nope, right off the bat. They dumped the Human Torch from the show in favor of a robot named Herbie. Um, a change that allegedly was mandated by a lawsuit because they would fear that, I guess, kids who like the Human Torch would douse themselves in gasoline and light themselves on fire? I, I don't know. Um, however, the character of the Human Torch was uh, optioned to Universal for possibly being developed into its own film or TV series. I, either way, it doesn't mar matter. It was it, they, they had no Johnny Storm. There was no Human Torch. They had a robot named fucking Herbie. Uh, and, you know, rather than sensibly setting aside the idea of a Fantastic Four cartoon for the time being, Stan Lee dreamed up the idea of having an adorable robot sidekick named Herbie, created by Reed Richards. And um, it, to me, that's just the cartoon equivalent of saying Van Helsing uh, dumping a party animal bassist, Michael Anthony, and... Uh, or Van Halen, not Van Helsing, Jesus Christ. Uh, Van Halen dumping Michael Anthony and touring with uh, a new robot basis created by Eddie Van Halen in his garage. Um, the title sequence, again, uh, you know, the original cast members emerge from the ship one by one to show off their original, uh, their impressive powers. Um, ben Grimm almost vomits before turning into the thing. It's hilarious. Uh, and saving the best for last, Herbie the robot emerges from the ship to show off his ability, which was just waving to the camera. He just waved to the camera. But, wait, there's more. We have the Cubert cartoon. So, Cubert uh, was a video game, an arcade game, that essentially, uh, the game was basically like most games of that era. It had no story to speak of. And Cubert is just a little orange monster thing who hops around on squares. It's basically a puzzle game. Um, it, it came from a from a time when video games were less complicated than the minds of your average Nickelback fan. Um, but there were some villains in it in the Cubert Cubert show. It had uh, snakes, uh, balls that would just jump around, other random shapes that Cubert had to avoid. Um, but it, it, I guess apparently every video game at that era had to have a cartoon. It wasn't really a question of if, it was a question of when. And that being said, Cubert was really a baffling cartoon. So, in the, in the sh show, the Cuberts were an alien species apparently, and they lived what looked in like a planet trapped in the 1950s with hot rods and greasers and letterman jackets, but then suddenly uh, parts of the planet are also the 80s and there are surfers and a mermaid, and then suddenly part of the planet has got dinosaurs and caveman cuberts. Um, robots, a Frankenstein, futuristic 80s musical, musical instruments, and then another 1950s soda shop complete with like sock hop music. Uh, and finally at the end of the opening sequence, Cubert flies into frame on a flying disc. And that's literally the entire opening sequence that I just described to you. Uh, the series has actually had everything the video game did. Uh, it had boxes, Cubert, evil snakes. Um, there's just an extra 40 levels of insanity there, rather than uh, you know the four levels you got at the arcade. 
Uh, so Kubert goes to Kuberg High School, and he hangs out at the Kuberg Mall and listens to Q-Wave music, which is generally pretty boring, considered he's a furry space alien. Um, his adventures are as diverse as looking for a lost dog, dealing with a robot who has low self-esteem, or telling the story of a group of Kuberts to a uh, group of children with cave drawings. Um, you know, just like any 1950s fuzzy alien would do. Um, and the cartoon villains were the snakes from the game, but instead of being snakes, which are already impossibly terrifying and require no justification for being murderous sons of bitches, they are now a gang of leather jacket-wearing Fonzie-style greasers, who do uh, everything to compete against Hubert, like in races or brainwash his pals, um, things like that. So basically, if you ever wondered what the movie American Graffiti would be like if the characters listened to Duran Duran and Richard Dreyfus was a fuzzy pint-sized alien, and sometimes they were robots, th this is that cartoon. Uh, lastly, lastly, however, we have the Robonic Stooges. So, you remember the Three Stooges and they were like a thing? You know, they were comedians, it was black and white, they did slapstick comedy. Well. Apparently, in the late 1970s, Hanna-Barbera revived the Stooges as the Robonic Stooges and finally would let us know the answer to that age-old question of what would it be like if the Three Stooges were uh, reimagined as crime-fighting robots who are also superheroes. So, in real life, the Three Stooges had been dead for... all of them had been dead for quite some time, at least, at least two to five years. So it kind of, for me anyway, I took this creepy subtext away from it that maybe the robots, uh, the robotic stooges themselves, had been constructed constructed from the actual corpses of the original stooges. Uh, but that's just me. You know, um, according to the series' very first episode called Invasion of the Incredible Giant Chicken, the stooges were built from the world's quote-unquote finest electronic parts and designed to be the world's most perfect electronic robots. Um, it's never explained why they were designed to look and act like famous comedians best known for fucking slapstick. Uh, but if I dig into that particular plot point, I may not like what I find, so I'm going to blissfully ignore it and continue on as if I never thought of it in the first place. Um, the Stooges also have secret identities and a, j and a day job where they work in a junkyard. Why robots would need secret identity and a source of income is unclear to me, but since they're robots and could probably just be shut off when they're not used, so, you know, why do they have to have a job and secret identity? If you just, you know, hey, we've got a problem here, fire up the Stooges. You just turn the button, they turn on, they go off, they do Stooge things, they, the slapstick antics barely, barely save the day, but somehow do because that was the 70s. It was literally the gayest decade of all. Um, but, you know, no, they, that's, that's not what they do. Uh, so their shenanigans get to be so unbearable in this cartoon that, for comedy purposes, the Stooges are, constant, are a constant thorn in the side of their employers, the Superhero Employment Agency. Uh, they frequently come close to firing them, even though, again, they're robots who've been designed to act like famous comedians and not superheroes. Uh, once again, they could simply turn them off, or am I not understanding the concept of robots correctly? Do, do I not get this? Um, anyway, in each episode, the Stooges fight supervillains that were usually giant ones for no reason, and usually through a series of comedic misfortunes and bunglings, they save the day. And but th that's how it should have been. That's how the Sto uh, Stooges were. So that's the uh, that's forgotten cartoons for the night. But um, you know, there, what else is there? Let's 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 talk about some sex toys that nobody ever wanted. Hmm. Hmm. 
Oh, no, wait, wait. I got to tell you guys about one more cartoon. It's the absolute worst cartoon I've ever seen. So, okay. Sometimes, uh, because I'm a complete sociopath, apparently, who enjoys torturing my own mind, I'll go to YouTube and I'll watch old black and white cartoons from the 1930s and 40s. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Uh, nothing, except that they all apparently seem to have been made by demons who were all mainlining acid. Uh, went into rehab, then fell off the wagon all at the same time, only to start mainlining even more acid. Um, but I stumbled across one that, uh, by leaps and bounds, has to be the most ins insanity-inviting thing I've ever seen since uh, the Hard Rock Coco and Joe uh, Christmas special about uh, clearly Asian Santa's mischievous elves. Um, I cannot tell you... I cannot just tell you about it. I have to run through the entire cartoon scene by scene for you, okay? Because it's truly the kind of thing that until you see with your own eyes, you are truly unaware of the sheer Lovecraftian madness lurking just beyond the veil. Um, okay, so I said, every one of these cartoons looks like a demonic acid trip. Um, that being said, I want to tell you that officially, LSD was first produced in 1938. I say officially because I said that this cartoon says it's from 1930. And there's no way it was created without massive doses of acid being pumped into everyone involved. Um, it starts like every other cartoon of that era, with a cartoon dog trying to steal a chicken and being chased by a fat cop. Um, and while escaping, the dog runs into a graveyard, which seems a reasonable place to hide. It's night, the cop chasing him is a portly fellow, um, probably won't want to spend his night looking around in a graveyard. Things seem like they're going to work out for the dog, you know? And that's when the terror begins. Everything in the graveyard is alive. Every fucking thing. For starters, as soon as the dog goes into the graveyard, the gate instantly grows a mouth and swallows its own key. That's never a good sign. That's never a good sign. Um, so just the gate mouth alone would be terrifying enough, but it gets worse. Um, as soon as the dog recoils in horror from the gate swallowing its own key, like it was the most delicious fucking thing a gate has ever eaten, um, a bunch of hell mouths just start opening up in the ground and try to swallow the dog up, and then the headstones in the graveyard come around, come around and sur come alive and surround him, um, and they start telling him how terrible he is. Um, what's even more troubling is that they're telling him this in the form of like jazzy blues songs. Um, so the dog tries to hide in a barn, where the insanity decides that it's going to step it up a notch. Um, you know, first he's harassed by inanimate objects clearly possessed by demons, and then a giant version of the chicken that he tried to steal from the beginning starts performing a scat routine uncontrollably at him. Uh, then his underwear float off and turns into a ghost who tries to cut his throat. I'm not making any of this up. This actually happens. Ash, am I making this up? What? About the cartoon with the dog? Yes! From, from 1930. Swing you sinners? No, you were watching the other day. Yeah. But didn't his underwear try to slit his own throat? Yeah, it's fucking real. He runs back outside, but the entire barn then turns into ghoulish faces that were apparently painted by Andy Warhol, even though Andy Warhol would have only been two years old at the fucking time, and it chases him. So, the dog is then chased into a cave. I don't know where there's a, why there's a cave in a graveyard, but he was, you know, I'm, again, this is like demons mainlining acid made this thing. So he's chased into a cave by an endless swarm of ghosts, and here the cartoon stops fucking around and goes into full-blown drug-fueled insanity. It contains, I swear to God, a frog feeling itself up in a way that is impossible to describe as anything other than opium withdrawal. The giant 
Then a giant skeletal hand swoops in and beheads the dog, and finally, a giant horrifying skull face swallows him. And that's the last thing you see in the cartoon. It's over after that. There's no resolution. There's no waking up to find it was a terrible dream and the dog is going to change its ways. Nothing. Just black and white escalating madness for eight minutes, and it leaves you staring at the screen in terror and disbelief. That is the... It, it was called Swing You Sinners. If you... Um, for those of you out there that like to dabble in, uh, dabble in things like, uh, you know, the, uh, things that you smoke or things that you take and ingest to make reality warp, I don't suggest watching this cartoon during that time, because it already looks like that. Um, you know what else I just thought of? The Cavity Creeps. Do you guys remember the Cavity Creeps? Who remembers the fucking Cavity Creeps? They were like a cartoon for like a uh, like a fucking toothpaste commercial, right? Hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were for the Crest commercial. They were um, the Cavity Creeps were uh, cartoon characters featured in a Crest commercial in the uh, the seventies and eighties. Um, they were basically foot soldiers of some uh, who attacked Toothopolis. Uh, without any real motivation other motivation needed other than to just make holes in teeth. Um, you know, I, I wonder what their motivation could have been. The fucking cavity creeps. Why were they just attacking Toothopolis just other than to make holes in the teeth? Because, you know, every attack is against this, the city of Toothopolis. And you had the kids, the, uh, the Crest kids who would come out and uh, fight off the cavity creeps in the commercials. Um... But every attack is against the city of Toothopolis. But, um, you know, assuming, of course, the city's structure is based on the human mouth, then I assume the, uh, the attacks would have been against the southern mandible. Um, there's no mention at all of an upper or northern mandible, but uh, that's because it's a cartoon and I'm overthinking it. Um, however, I, I personally think that, uh, you know, the man has fooled us all into thinking that these Crest kids were fighting for a noble cause when, in fact, they were fighting for anything but. It's the creeps who are actually fighting for something more important than the simple destruction of uh, enamel. Uh, they're fighting for freedom. What if they, uh, what, what if they were fighting... Let's, let, let's say that their queen, Queen Gingivitis, was murdered by the rulers of Toothopolis during a trap that was staged as a peace summit between their two peoples. And uh, following her demise, the cavity creeps were set upon by agents most foul and forced into slave labor where they were eventually used in the building of this very city that they attack, only then to be forced to live in the barren outskirts after its completion. You know, if I were them, you know, I would swear vengeance for my lost queen, as well as go after that city. Um, that's, the, that's become the symbol of, our, of their oppressors. So the Cavity Creeps relentlessly attack that, um, even though they're outmatched and outgunned at every turn by the Crest Kids, who are, for some reason, the policing force of Toothopolis. Um... Okodoko. Let's get into some sex toys that nobody asked for. Okay. Alright. So, uh... The first one on my list... I've compiled a list for you. The first one on my list is called The Launch Pad. The Launch Pad. Um, basically, it's a holster for tablets that you fuck. Um, so, you know, no, no, no longer are you just stuck idly uh, masturbating to internet porn, you can now actually interact with your screen in a way that you never wanted to be possible. 
Um, I have no doubt in my mind that your average iPad can uh, fully take the physical strain of a full-size human male going to town on it. It'll barely break in two. Um, and as it's a product aimed for literally fucking social media wall, um, it, it actually raises some interesting points about the Launchpad's usage. I mean, technically, yeah, it's supposed to be for watching porn and fucking your porn. But uh, how long before the user ventures outside triple X-rated sites and finds yourself just casually laying pipe to your friend's Facebook wall? Or how long until Yahoo.com finds itself being sexually accosted by you during a night of binge drinking? Am I taking this too far? I'm probably taking this too far. Nope, I can do worse. Fuckable beer cans! That's right. Do you love beer so much that it frustrates you that you just can't for once show beer your real appreciation? Well, this fine product finally enables the man who really, really, really loves his beer to express that love in the way that nature never once intended. I suppose the manufacturer could have been going for like a sort of discreteness factor. Um, in this day and age, you know, 2019, nothing really surprises me. Um, but, you know, then again, a beer can's not really a particularly good choice for an inconspicuous product. The only believable locations you can actually casually store beer cans are the fridge or the cooler, um, aka the last place you want your sex toys to be when you find yourself suddenly in need of them. Um, you can take one to literally anywhere else, and you'll run a risk of someone grabbing this particular can by accident, or you'll run less of a risk of somebody grabbing this particular can by accident and attempting to drink it, only to find himself face-to-face -face with a container of limp fake flesh that you may or may not have remembered to clean. I don't buy, and I, I don't buy for a second that this is a no one will ever know product. These things have been precisely, this is designed for two, two types of people. A, people who want to fuck a beer and don't care who knows it, and B, rednecks who buy them because sheep tend to fight more. Okay, here's my favorite one on the list. This one's literally called the cock pipe. The cock pipe. Um, you know, as, as, as big of a presence as weed is in almost every type of product ever now, um, it's surprising how little it does feature into the field of sexuality. I mean, you could probably buy a pot leaf uh, pattern vibrator or condoms with 420 wrapper on them from any paraphernalia store on earth, but only the most serious fuckers tend to be shit out of luck for the look guys I like to smoke marijuana themed genital terror. Because the cockpipe is a dong sleeve with a tiny pipe attached to it, so you can smoke a bone while you're smoking a bone. Um, I personally suspect that 90% of the people actually using this thing will wind up dick-stabbing themselves in the eye. It's going to happen. Um, I really have a few questions about the implications of this product as well, because if I ever saw a product that screamed, you can have some of my stash, but on one condition, it's this one. Um, you know, even if you were using it in full mutual understanding, which is unlikely, the chances of it ever actually improving oral sex are around jack and shit. Because unless there's some cannabis strain I'm not aware of that, that completely enables you to keep up your stamina and d dive into your bag of tricks as you become more and more stoned, I don't know what that is. Um, you may be aware that the way this type of pipe works, also the way this type of pipe works is that you heat the bowl with a lighter before you inhale. This means that the cockpipe encourages you to bring an open flame to the immediate vicinity of your partner's exposed nether region. 
while also trying to pay attention to pleasuring said region, while also getting more and more stoned and losing control of your basic motor functions. That's the cockpipe. That's my favorite one. Um, the creepiest one is definitely by far, by far this. It's called, and I'm not making this up, the Stay Close Blowjob Aid. And honestly, it's because sometimes really the creepiest sex gear is the kind that you don't normally recognize as being sex gear at all. It's the stuff that you look like, and at first glance, it could be something like, oh, maybe that's a kettle holder or a really ill-advised scarf for a super designer, like a stupid designer scarf or some shit. Uh, maybe it's an obscure kitchen utensil from the 50s that your grandmother gave as a present, along with a uh, $3 gift card to McDonald's. Um, in reality, this little piece of leather and suede is marketed under the name the Stay Close Blowjob Aid, and works exactly the way that lizard part of your brain is starting to suspect it does with unfathomable terror. Um, basically, the best way I could put it is, you remember that scene in Big Lebowski where Jesus is cleaning his bowling, bowling ball? I, I imagine that somebody saw that and thought to themselves, huh, wouldn't it be great if a sex toy were replaced that bowling ball with someone's face? And then they did. It's got handles and the leather cloth part wraps around the back of your partner's head and if you can't figure out the rest, then turn off this podcast and go do your fucking homework. Um, I wouldn't willfully imprison the head of a person whose teeth are within biting distance of my unguarded pelvic area, but that's just me. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Um, okay, so the next one is called the Dildo Maker, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a thing that turns other things into dicks. Um, I can't tell if that device particularly looked more like a pencil sharpener or a meat grinder, uh, both of which are, are among the absolute worst mental images that can be connected with the concept of a penis, by the way. Uh, but the dildo maker is essentially a whittling, whittling, whittling device. Uh, cus it's custom designed to turn any object you can fit in there into something that you can then fit into your vagina or your butt. I don't care. You know, I don't, again, I don't judge. Live your life how you want. And, you know, just because the world isn't unfair enough, the machine is just somehow called Dildo Maker. So this means that it's all too easy to mistake it for one of those kits people use to turn their real dicks into artificial dicks, if that, is, if that exists. Um, ones that presumably some real people who totally aren't, uh, you know, sticking up their own stuff. Can you imagine that cutting off your dick, turning it into a dildo, and then using it uh, to pleasure yourself? That's fucked up. Uh, and only, only this mind, the great George Carlin once said, somebody's got to think of these things, and apparently I've been appointed. Um, you know, even if the sex toy industry at large won't inevitably bite on this concept of the dildo maker, I, I, I can, I, I, I will bet, I will bet real money that there's someone out there, probably some jaded Chinese guy, who will eventually discover it, shrug, drink some bamboo-flavored energy drink, and then flood the market with cheap knockoffs of this that will inevitably become inevitably come with a user manual so confusing you know that some unfortunate asshole is going to end up sticking their dick in it. Oh, man. Okay. So, last one, huh? The last sex toys that nobody asked for. Sex toy body parts. So this is who we are now, people, huh? We're taking what was what are essentially horror movie props and just making them fuckable, just to quiet down the screaming voices in our own heads, huh? That's 
that's shooting way above your everyday generic sociopath territory. It's veering dangerously close to just outright supervillainy. Um, you know, there are body part themed sex toys and they come out in a very wide variety. Not all of them are your traditional genital, butt, mouth, uh, area parts. Some of them veer uncomfortably deep into this, into the, this person has a fridge full of faces in their basement territory. Um, for those times that you, I guess, wanted to self-administer a hand job from a waxy imitation of a female hand instead of the more obvious and comfortable spin on it, which would be a real hand, there's a dong sleeve with a goddamn hand affixed to it. But, not to be outdone, if hands aren't your thing, you can always shove your dick into a pair of disembodied rubber feet that look like props from uh, a triple X-rated version of John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, the only thing I can imagine that would be worse than fucking a foot-gina would actually be fucking a severed head with a fuckable windpipe, right? That also exists. And no, don't fuck its mouth, it has a fuckable windpipe. Fucking its mouth would be ridiculous. Fuck it up the neck hole and see if you can't oh, get your sorry. dick to pop out. What's uh, that, bud? Why are you reading? I'm doing my podcast. Thanks. Fuck it up the neck hole and see if you can get your dick to pop out its mouth while it stares at you in disembodied hoarder. It's dead eyes scanning you for any sign of weakness or remorse. Why does it have to be Asian, too? It seemed pretty racist. Alrighty. Let's uh, let's talk about some more things. Uh, let's talk about your partner's crotch. Did you know that there's a shitload of things about your partner's crotch that I guarantee you don't know? Such as missing balls. For example, ladies. Ladies listening to this podcast. Are you familiar with balls, or as they're known in some circles, slappers? They're a pair of oversensitive little snowflakes that men carry around in a fleshy coin purse between their legs, and other than reproduction, are mostly just there for decoration. Uh, they're ridiculously capable of collecting sweat, and they're oddly musky after a day of sitting in a room doing nothing but playing WWE 2K19. I know that you're likely aware of this information from all that ball porn that you ladies are out there watching, but what you may not be aware of, and what you sometimes have really no reason to know, is the fact that your average ball has a serious case of wanderlust. Sometimes, for no reason whatsoever, a ball will just up and vanish. What do I mean vanish? Well, I mean take the fuck off. And it's only ever one at a time. As though your balls had a heated argument and uh, one forced the other to go spend the night at its parents' house. Uh, so your sack will just be slatching there against your thigh like a drunk, and one ball will be holed up in there like the Unabomber, while the other ball will be three fingers deep in your torso, exploring the nooks and crannies of whatever the fuck is between your dick and your butthole. Um, yeah, so that's something. How about that? Yep. Okay, so I want to talk for a second. You know, I'm a retail employee. I am a, a retail employee, and I, I firmly believe that speaking to a retail employee or being a retail employee who is forced to speak to anyone at any given point in time should be made illegal. Because if you're like me, minor social interactions can quickly become paralyzing obstacle courses of anxiety and shame that uh, challenge you to find a balance between saying too too little and saying too much without toppling over into 
stuttering catastrophe. There's no reason for basic social transactions to be so difficult, but every time I'm confronted with them, I'm immediately become wrapped in a shroud of nervousness and embarrassment. Um, it's sort of like if Harry Potter's invisibility cloak turned nothing invisible except for his clothes. Um, yeah, any customer interaction becomes a nightmare if you're uncomfortable speaking to new people. And if you're like me, then your job requires you to greet, engage with, and basically ask overtly personal questions about a person's lifestyle as well as kind of detailed knowledge of the interior of their homes. You know, just in case I ever need to know exactly how to rob or murder them. Um, as a retail worker who has to get to know what my customer who is a person or persons who came in with little to no interest in speaking to me to begin with, it's difficult to set a midpoint between I have no interest to speaking in speaking to you versus we are now best friends. Um, but society's rules of interaction dictate that I must and my customer must pretend to enjoy my company, which automatically forces my brain to try to wrestle dumbass jokes in every conversation with all the grace and finesse of stuffing a dead fat man into a magician's trunk. Uh, there's no reason for interaction to be any deeper than politely telling the customer my name and that should they need my assistance, I'll be ready and available. I, in all likelihood, will never speak to this person again, and exactly 100% of the time, they have absolutely no interest in being my friend. Yet, I've got to treat every conversation like I have with them, like I'm trying to ask, for, to ask them to the fucking prom or something. Uh, because of that completely unnecessary and entirely self-imposed pressure, when I open my mouth to deliver formidably handsome witticisms, what tends to come tumbling out instead are sounds that no human being should ever make. Uh, sounds that do not unlock doors of friendship or make themselves say, I believe this man is a man that I can trust. Uh, yet, I continue to make them, just smiling and nodding while the Pandora's box of goblin shrieks that is my mouth keeps spitting out incoherent streams of thought like a haunted jukebox playing every song it plays in, back in reverse. Uh, Consequently, when I go out shopping for anything other than groceries, I will wander aimlessly around the store for hours if I can't find what I'm looking for, because I am terrified of asking an employee for help. Now, I'll do it, but I don't like to. I'm terrified of it. You know, what if the employee I flag down is uh, right in the middle of an important task? I know exactly how annoying that is, and would in no way, shape, or form wish that on anybody else. Nonetheless, want to be the cause of it. So, I'll spend 10 minutes staring at the same rack of action-adventure DVDs looking for a copy of Enemy Mine, knowing in my heart that a copy of Enemy Mine has never been within the four walls of this Walmart, but being unable to flag down one of my many employees wandering around the toasters and cordless phones because Walmart just seems to like to lump all its electronics into one vague pile of unrelated nonsense, uh, because the thought of doing so fills me with real, actual dread. I don't want to talk to anyone. I came here looking for enemy mine so that I could spend the rest of my no the rest of my no night at home watching enemy mine. Sure, I could have bought it online, but there are times when I don't want to have to wait two days for my purchases to come in the mail. Sometimes I needed a copy of enemy mine immediately, so I will stride purposefully into a retail location and reflexively deny any assistance as if I have the entire floor plan committed to memory even if I've never been to this particular location before and have no idea how to even find my way back to the entrance. Uh, when I inevitably can't find what I'm looking for, I'll start doing laps around the store. I'll walk into other sections containing items that I have absolutely no intention of buying uh, just to create the appearance that I know exactly what I'm doing and am merely taking my time as an informed and mature consumer, uh, which as anybody that knows me knows I am not. Uh, finally, when I do have to break down, 
and ask someone for help. I do it as if I were a serial killer choosing his next victim. I don't walk straight up to a sales associate and ask, no, 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 not me. I spend at least five minutes singling out the employee who looks the least busy because, again, I wouldn't want to interrupt someone, some important task and have them hate me even more than they're already going to for the idiot a question I'm about to ask with my idiot face. So I just begin circling them like a blind shark. I then stand at a distance as to not intrude on their personal space or give them the impression that I need any help, and then I stare at them until they acknowledge my presence finally asking very sheepishly if they happen to have a copy of Enemy Mind on hand. Of course, knowing they don't, forcing them to search for it, and then finding out what I already knew was the truth. They don't carry a copy of Enemy Mind. Um, or that I had been, vice versa, that I had been staring at the road directly above it for half an hour. Um, I'm so off-putting, I'm sure, to these, to these people that once I leave, they probably dust everything I touched for fingerprints and send them to the FBI to see how many disappearances they can solve. Um, okay, uh, last time, I got two more segments for you. Last time I did an uh, episode, I compared my genitalia to cars. And I, I started thinking about that after I did the episode, after it was live, and that's, you know, who am I? How, how sexist am I to just say that I'm going to compare my dick to cars? So, ladies, just for you, I'm now going to compare your lady parts to cars. Here we go. Your vagina is like a limousine. Beautiful, elegant, and available on a temporary basis to any rich prick who flies into town. Also available for young couples on prog night, and it comfortably seats six. Your vagina is like a vintage Mustang that sits in the garage and occasionally gets started up to make sure it works, but hasn't really been driven in a while. Your vagina is like a Studebaker. Functional, but unsightly and not proportional to the human body. Your vagina is like a Toyota Camry. Friendly, attractive, and reliable. Your vagina is like a 2017 Smart 4.2. It's small, compact, and can go for miles on very little fuel. Your vagina is more like the Mazda Miata. Amazingly fun to play with, but when driven by an amateur, is liable to crash into a field, sadly killing both parties and a sheep. Your vagina is like a 1986 Chevy Citation. Mid-sized, white, no one can remember what it looks like, takes a beating and keeps on going. Your vagina is like a Mini Cooper. Small and stylish, stylish. Hard to get in, but once you're riding, you have the time of your life. Your vagina is like a 2005 Hyundai Accent. It gets driven fairly often, but still has low miles. Small enough that one person can fit comfortably, but upon adding a second, you have noticeably less room. Technically, there's a back seat, but nobody's ever ridden back there either. Your vagina is like a BMW iDrive. Overly, overly complicated and confuses and frustrates anybody who attempts to touch it. And lastly, your vagina is like a Porsche. Small, clean, and unusually, occupi and usually occupied by fast drivers. However, it has been known to flip over easily, and the crashes are devastating. All right. Time cop. Time cop. Time to review. Time cop. Okay. So, basically, the premise of Time Cop involves uh, a corrupt U.S. senator who was played by Ron Silver, uh sending various henchmen back into the past with a time machine, time travel technology that exists in uh, the very futuristic time of the year 2004, so that way he can steal money 
so that he way in his present time of 2004 he can become both a billionaire and the president and you know honestly if you have access to a time machine and you set your goals any lower than that you're, you're not using your time machine right um, however in the very first scene of the movie we see that one of these henchmen blasts a detachment of confederate soldiers with a pair of futuristic machine guns to steal their supply of uh, gold bars now why in all of history that you have access to with your time travel machine would you go to civil war era georgia to pull off your heist i mean surely there have got to be more obvious ways to abuse time travel than capturing a shipment of outdated currency you can't walk into a bank and just hand them a stack of gold bars. It's like Ron Silver is challenging himself with his own plan here, you know, just to kind of keep his mind limber. Um, there's one scene that takes place in the uh, the Time Enforcement Commission facilities. That's what they call it. Uh, and Jean-Claude Van Damme is their, their main character here. So uh, Ron Silver takes a tour of the, uh, the facility at one point, you know, with Van Damme in tow, and announces that after he becomes president, he has the intention to shut the whole place down. Uh, he basically asserts that it makes way more sense to eliminate time travel than to spend billions of dollars policing it. Um, which is, you know, despite the fact that he says this 30 minutes into the film, it's literally the most logical thing anybody says in that film. It's as if there's a public servant part of his character's brain that immediately recognized the threat of time travel, but then the self-serving reptile part of his brain just couldn't resist exploiting it. Um, you know, before I get too far ahead of myself, and uh, congrat on congratulating his genius. Let's let's take a moment to examine his henchmen, because every bad guy in every bad guy in the 80s and early 90s had henchmen. Um, his henchmen, without exception, all look like members of Color Me Bad. Um, I assume that that was an explicit part of the interviewing process. It, it was a prerequisite to be his henchmen. Uh, you have to look like you were kicked out of Color Me Bad. Um, at one point, two henchmen are dispatched into the past. Uh, to kill a lady time cop while she's lying in a hospital bed, recovering from exhausting afternoons of double-crossing Jean-Claude Van Damme. And as the scene unfolds, you can immediately appreciate the zero effort that Ron Silver makes to ensure his time-traveling assassins blend into their mid-90s emergency ward. They are clearly the most conspicuous men in the hospital. They're even more conspicuous than a time-traveling policeman played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, and the taller of the two guys look like he's wearing uh, two different... His haircut looks like two different wigs had been sewn together. Um, my favorite scene in the whole movie, though, has got to be whenever, uh, you know, Ron Silver sends his henchmen to kill Van Damme at his apartment. So there's a scene in the movie where, uh, you know, uh, it's got to, by far, has the most Van Damming I can remember seeing in, in under three minutes in any of his movies. Um, so two assassins attack him in his talking apartment um, after he spends an evening drinking heavily and watching old movies of his super murdered wife. The first guy tries to shoot Van Damme in the face with a taser, just shoot him straight in the fucking face with a two-pronged lightning gun, and uh, you know, even on my list of sadistic ways to murder a person, this one's near the bottom. This has got to be near the bottom. You'd have to go through five pages of more more practical ideas before la landing on electrocuting a drunken widower's, uh, drunken widower, widower's face to death. When Van Damme quickly uh, avoids this, because he has that ability, because he's Jean-Claude Van Damme, he's immediately attacked by the second hitman, 
who attacks him with karate screams instead of using either of the two knives he brought with him. So he's now having to deal with screaming knife murderer. Van Damme does this by immediately glancing over his kitchenette to search for a weapon, resulting in my favorite shot of the entire film. So at some point before in between weepily consuming an entire bottle of whiskey and passing out in front of the video of his dead wife's birdhouse construction, uh, Van Damme stopped to cut up a bunch of vegetables for absolutely no reason and just left them all out on the counter. He literally cuts halfway through an onion and then he stopped mid-vegetable, just leaving the knife there. I guess as a warning to would-be intruders about uh, his access to cutlery as well as probably his current state of mind. Um, also, the movie gives us every reason to believe that he did this in his underpants. Uh, the best part is, though, he doesn't actually use that knife. We never see that knife again. He just gets the shit stabbed out of him until he's able to set up an elegant sidekick and deal an increased amount of damage. And then the explosive scene ends with Van Damme doing the splits for the second time in, under, in less than an hour. Um... Then, after this, the, the, the rest of the film just gets the shit Van Damned out of it. Um, you know, again, this is all taking place in a science, science fiction film about the tragedy of a time traveler who's forbidden to alter the past to save his dead wife. Um, also, despite being an elite time detective, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's investigative process, process consists almost con exclusively of staring at a picture of the bad guy while moody piano music plays uh, away, pl plinks away in the background. You know, he... he he can't waste any time with subtlety here while he's busy van damming. He, he escapes uh, the hospital uh, from the other two assassins at one point by jumping through a fourth story window. Um, and how does he finally end up saving his wife from being murdered? By teaming up with his past self for a dual Van, for a dual van Dam assault. I had, honestly, I'd forgotten how good Time Cop was because of how bad Time Cop was. It had all the ingredients to be a fantastic movie, yet it's, it, it's, it was such a misfire um, that it's almost literally impossible to watch it without scrunching up your face and backing, backing away from your television. Um, and that's, that's perfectly alright to do so. So in the end of the movie, uh, Van Tam returns to his own time after rescuing his wife. Um, for the record, every, I, I also want to point out, apparently everything interesting in this film takes place in the year 1994. So, you know, having access to time travel and the entire history of time, they decide to go exclusively to 1994. You get your opening robbery in Confederate-era, you know, Civil War-era America, and then after that, 1994, across the board. Um, so, Van Damme goes back to 1994 he, to save his wife. He leaves the office, uh, he rescues his wife, he goes back to his own time in 2004, and he leaves the office and drives up to his house, which is unexploded for some reason, despite having clearly exploded ten years earlier in the previous scene. Uh, it's just back to normal. Um, and he meets his future son for the first time, cause the, and the little guy just toddles out to, to give him a hug. Because in the previous timeline, his wife died before their son was born, so he didn't know. And I've got no nice way to say this. The Van Damme's kid at the end of Time Cop, he just looks like a fucking asshole. He's a real fucking Marvin, man. Uh... He just looks like an Eddie Bauer catalog, threw up all over a Kmart bathroom. He's got a stupid haircut. He's unreasonably blonde because neither Van Damme or the his uh, wife were played like by people that are that blonde. 
and he runs towards Van Damme like he knows exactly what it's like to get beaten up on the playground daily. Um, I like to believe that they filmed an alternate ending where Van Damme is thrown into a rage after seeing how his son turned out and goes back in time to ensure his wife's death. Um, but it, 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 they never did. Uh, however, Time Cop ends with the Time Cop passionately kissing his wife, who, uh, by the way, was uh, Sloane in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It was Ferris Bueller's girlfriend, by the way. So I guess she left Ferris to uh, hook up with Van Damme. Um, and, you know, he kisses her passionately, finally gets to hold her in his arms again after 10 years, a brutal morning and doing the splits. And she gives him a strange look and says, are you all right? And, okay, like that bugs me because I know it's only been 10 years. It's been 10 years since they, you know, it happened. But you can't tell me that she, she, she has to remember the night that her two husbands killed a bunch of time terrorists caused two separate versions of an evil mastermind to melt because they touched each other and then blew up her house. She must have known that at some point in the future, Van Damme was going to come home from work and just collapse sobbing into her arms. Sure, there'd be the moment of initial confusion, but then you'd think, okay, everything would click. She'd be like, oh shit, okay, is that today? Wow, no, I get it. Nope, doesn't happen. Instead, they just go inside where I'm sure Van Damme will be getting naked again and doing even more splits. So that's that's Time Cop. But I'm not going to finish with Time Cop tonight. I'm going to finish with more fucked up characters from children's TV shows from around the world. Because believe it or not, the ones I told you about last time weren't the worst I could find. I found more. I found more. We're going to start with Mr. Nosy Bonk. Mr. Nosy Bonk. Mr. Nosy Bonk. Yeah, Mr. Nosy Bonk will eat your fucking dreams. If let me, How can I describe Mr. Nosy Bonk? Um, if Mr. Bean... Because he was British, so if uh, Mr. Bean hate-fucked the ghost of Albert Einstein, then whatever their demonic spawn grew up to be would be Mr. Nosybonk. He appeared in segments of an 80s BBC series appropriately titled Jigsaw, because he makes me more afraid than dealing with the Jigsaw killer, and apparently he makes uh, large white phallic objects grow out of the garden. Um... So this dick-nosed terror phantom grinned with all the satisfaction and mirth of a midnight rapist who's just singled out his next victim. Uh, he has chalk-white skin, wide glaring eyes, and a business suit that I'm pretty sure was made out of the fears of, the young, of young children. Um, so it only made it seem all the more plausible that he's waiting inside your home when you get home on a rainy evening to flay the doughy flesh from your face like you're both stuck in a Hellraiser movie. Um, seeing how he was British, though, he does almost get a pass for that. Except once you actually witness him using the dark arts to forcibly grow a garden full of pasty white penises, then you'll just kind of want to cry and run away. You know, that's Mr. Nosy Punk. Um, next was a show from Estonia, which I didn't even know was a place until I stumbled upon the show, called Momi Ja Abits. And as far as I can tell, it's a show about serial killers wearing the skin of, ador of adorable animals. Momi Jaabits is basically what happens when an Estonian TV producer watches the doggy costume blowjob scene from The Shining, and it sparks an idea for a, for a children's show. It's like what I imagine would happen if Andy Warhol anthro had anthropomorphized a bear, but then forgot to subtract all of its uh, all-consuming bear lust for flesh. It's like watching a human being forcibly fused at a, at a genetic level with a woodland critter, and both of the, which... But both of this is happening against both of their wills. You know, in, in an effort to create expressive children's mascots, I, I'd wager, 
in the cheapest manner imaginable, the creators fashioned like these half-assed masks that only covered the tops of the performers' heads, allowing them to still make full expressive use of their human mouths. Um, it was a valiant attempt, rendered entirely moot, however, by the fact that they also chose to populate the eye holes of the mask with just dead, glazed orbs filled with liquid hate, uh, is the best way I can describe it. And that single misstep resulted in a reimagining of the Hunger Acre Wood, where instead Christopher, Wob Christopher Robin has been replaced with a young John Wayne Gacy, probably. Uh, also, there's a fox with lanky human legs doing pelvic thrust for what I can only imagine is indefinitely. Um, but it still gets worse than that. There is Ratafak Placha. Ratafak Placha is going to be hard for me to top. This may be the last fucked up children's uh, character segment because I don't think I'm going to find anything worse than Ratafak Placha. Ratafak Placha. How can I describe it? Um, okay, so if... If creepy puppeteering were an Olympic sport, then Ch Czechoslovakia would sweep the gold and then probably chainsaw murder the rest of the competi competition. Uh, there, they, there was a show they created called Slaniko, and it was hosted by Ratafak Placha, or as I call him, the king of loathing, unborn, and barren. Uh, the king of the loathing, unborn, and barren is what I call him. He is basically a seven-foot-tall um, monstrosity operated by two people beneath a bedsheet who I'm 100% convinced are skinless under there. Um, he has the face of a creature who wants to eat your fingers, but just the fingers, while they're still attached to your hand. Ratafak Placha is proof to me that the Soviets in the 80s attempted to weaponize nightmares by splicing the genes of Christopher Lloyd a featherless ostrich, a bloodthirsty gecko, and a thunderous Belgian orgasm, all together and creating Ratafak Placha. And if that description enough isn't enough to turn you into a self-imposed agoraphobe, somehow it gets worse. It gets worse. Ratafak exists, his world to him, the world around him, exists in a constant state of perpetual fast-forward. So, while everyone else is moving normal, speak, normal speeds, Ratafak seizes around as if the skinless creatures inside of him are being attacked by panthers. And did I mention that he can behead himself at will? Because he can totally behead himself at will. Finally, as the target audience, our children are supposed to follow this maniac with a hair-trigger attention span and apparently threaten, who would apparently threaten to rob you of both your money and your belief in a benevolent universe through a myriad of adventures in locales such as the ancient pyramids, the circus, and outer space. This had to be exactly as much fun to watch as listening to someone try to interpret a dream they had about an eating an entire tray of deli cheese. Um, again, did I, I said he can behead himself at will, right? And I'm, I'm honestly hoping that his attempts at beheading our children took a little bit more upper arm strength. Um, okay, I really don't know how to follow Ratafak Placha. It's fucking terrifying. I'm going to put a video of Ratafak Placha, Ratafak Placha on the uh, Facebook group page because, you know, why not? Let's uh, terrify my audience and alienate them. But before I do that, before I send you all screaming into the night like uh, like scared hippies, uh, I can't even think of a good, ma a good metaphor at this point. Jesus Christ, I think I used up all my metaphors during this episode. Um, I am, However, I do want you to check out the following.
and the follow by the following I mean podcasts. Check out a fireside chat hosted by Ryan McCormick, also known as the Grimace. Check out 4 a.m. knows all my secrets hosted by Ryan McCormick, also known as the Grimace, and Tiffany Moore, also known as I don't have a nickname for you because we haven't actually officially met yet. Um, both of those are on libsyn.com, as well as on iTunes. You can sign up for them on iTunes there. Uh, the next one would be Mixsaws, hosted by Paul, Ian, and Matt. Look at that. I got through all their names without calling them Pat or Plonk or something like that or Plop. Um, those are on uh, Podomatic and YouTube as well. Lastly, I want you to check out Case and Point Podcast, hosted by uh, Justin Case and Jody Yearden, also on uh, YouTube, but also on Audioboom. So check out them, enjoy, and lastly, as always, as usual, cue the fucking bear music. Just admit you love me. The South has always been dirty, but now it's getting ugly. Yeah.